Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for the time we have with you. We ask, Father God, that you would just embrace our hearts, to listen to your words. Help me, Father, to uh, become very weak up here so you can be strong through me. I thank God for the, the saints who are here. Bless their families. Bless their walk. Continue to be with those who are ill, Father, who can't come to church. That you would bless them and they would know that you're always with them. Continue to bless Pastor Arnold, Cinda, and their family as he is taking some time away. That he'll have a wonderful day today and come back next week and teach us some more about your word. I thank you, God, for your love and your mercy that's it's undeserved from our part. We thank God for the Holy Spirit. We thank Him for Jesus and all that He's done for us. This we say in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The devil decided to have a garage sale. Right? I like garage sales. How many of you guys like garage sales? Yeah, a few of us here. On the day of the sale, his tools were placed for public inspection, each being marked with a sale price on it. There was a tremendous lot of implements. There was hatred, there was envy, jealousy, deceit, lust, lying, pride, and so on. Set apart from the rest was a harmless looking tool it was quite worn, and yet it was priced very high. Hey, what's the name of this tool? One, one of the uh, customers asked as he was pointing to it. That is discouragement, Satan replied. Why have you priced it so high? Because it's more useful to me than the others. You see, I can pry open and get inside a man's heart with that. Even when I can't get near him with the other tools, it's badly worn out because I use it on almost everyone. Since so few people know, it belongs to me. The devil's price for discouragement was high because it is still his favorite tool. And you know what? He's still using it on God's people. Now, how do you change your mind? How do you change your mind when it comes to being discouraged? Well, you have to rethink the things in your life if you're going to change the things in your life. That same kind of thinking doesn't work. If you think the same thing over and over again, you're not going to have any change in your life. The Bible calls changing your mind repentance. Life is about learning to think less and less from my point of view, which is often messed up, twisted, all kinds of biology stuff. But the best way to think is to think the way God thinks, because God is always going to think the truth. The more I get God's truth in my life, the more that I can change my thoughts. I can repent. And then I can start living in a better way. So this morning, I want us to look at changing your mind about the way you think 
about the things that discourage you? And what are some causes of discouragement? And how to begin the path from discouragement to hope with Paul and Nehemiah as our examples this morning. I have from time to time met some people who are discouraged almost all the time. And they're ready to throw in the towel. They're at the end of the rope. They're ready to give up. They're discouraged about lots of things. And sometimes people go, you know, there's so much bad in this world right now. Well, I hate to tell you this, but there always has been bad. It's not like it's worse. It's always been bad because the Bible says God has given us free choice. And we often choose to not follow what he says. The Bible calls that sin and evil. And so people get discouraged. So today, I'm going to attempt to, we're going to, attempt to look at on how do you defeat discouragement in your life. Now, I don't, know, I don't know what's discouraging you this morning. But have you been discouraged by your finances or your health or a relationship? Then you picked a good week to come to church. Discouragement. Discouragement can be quite debilitating. It can cause you to give up trying, giving up on hope. You can give up caring when you get discouraged. When you get discouraged, you can give up believing. And the Bible has a lot to say about discouragement. Exodus chapter 6 verse 9 says this, Moses told the people what the Lord had said, but they wouldn't listen anymore. They had become too discouraged by the increasing burden of their slavery. I wonder what you feel is enslaving you. What burden is getting you down? What problem you've had that you've had so for so long, it's been so chronic? If you get discouraged like these people, they wouldn't even listen to God. They couldn't hear God because of their discouragement. The burden was too heavy in their life. And we all know that times in life, you come to a point where you just go, I'm so burdened down. I'm so overwhelmed. I don't even know what to think, what to care about. Now, that's discouragement. David felt that way. David felt that way in Psalms 42, verse 5. And he says this, Why am I so discouraged? Why am I sad? And the answer, he answered his own question. He says, I would put my hope in God. Anytime you feel discouraged, you need to change your thoughts. You need to change your focus. You need to change your mind. Discouragement is like a disease eating away at the hope of, in your heart. If it persists, it becomes resistant to the encouragement we often get from others. The Lord isn't on the sidelines just cheering on those who face the mountain of discouragement. There is no, you can do it, son, you can do it, or I believe in you. Get up and brush the dust off, your, off, your, off and get going. Not from Jesus. No, you don't get that. What you get from Jesus is someone who's conquering the mountain with you and helping you become unshakable, unbeatable, bulletproof, 
when it comes to being discouraged. You become faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. You become super Christian. Maybe. Webster defines discouragement as to deprive of courage or confidence, to be disheartened. The New Testament used three Greek words that all get about the same basic meaning of becoming disheartened, dispirited, or discouraged. But I think we're going to add some more D words describing discouraged. I'm going to add like demoralized, dismayed, distraught, depressed, defeated, despairing. They're all things we feel when the realities of life hijacked us. At the beginning of 2020, almost everyone in the world experienced collective discouragement and despair. COVID-19, it swept across borders and nations, infecting millions and killing hundreds of thousands. In, the, in an effort to stem the spread of the disease, people sheltered in their homes, separated from extended families, friends, neighbors, co-workers for months on end. Businesses shut down, schools sent kids and college students home, churches closed their doors and held services online. Aside from the economic devastation caused by the pandemic and the lives lost, mental health problems skyrocketed. People panicked. They started buying all this toilet paper. All right? What's up with toilet paper? Sanitizers. All right? And the face mask becomes a part of our wardrobe. As the pandemic wore on month after month after month, people became discouraged and demoralized, wondering whether life would ever get back to normal. Discouragement can be debilitating, but it doesn't just develop out of nowhere. Discouragement is always a result of some cause. Here are a few of the causes. Unresolved anger. Unresolved anger. It has been said that depression is anger turned inward. Usually we deal with our anger by venting, blowing up at whoever or whatever is responsible for turning our day on its head. Sometimes others are, are, are at fault, but sometimes we are at fault. When it's others, we may not feel the freedom to express how we really feel. We may fear that the loved ones will leave us or that our employer might fire us. So we bottle up this anger. When our problems are a result of our own sinfulness or foolishness, we kick ourselves eternally. If we don't deal with our anger, whether directed at another person or a situation or ourselves, discouragement can flood into our lives like water from a broken pipe. Another cause is unrealistic anxiety. Unrealistic anxiety. Nothing can snap our strength and, and make us discouraged and like worry. That was part of the Old Testament prophet, prophet Elijah's problem after his spiritual victory at Mount Carmel. He had this emotional breakdown when Jezebel threatened his life in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. He was physically exhausted, but he was also worried about what Jezebel would do to him. 
What made his anxiety, anxiety unrealistic was the fact that God had already protected him from the evil schemes of a her, of her priest. He had, they had carried swords with them to Mount Carmel. Another cause is unrepentant guilt. Unrepentant guilt. False guilt. Or misplaced guilt. Is a tool that Satan uses to convince us that our past sins, though they have been confessed and forgiven by God, are really not forgiven. That God still holds us accountable for the sins, uh, unforgivable, uh, excuse me, that God will still hold us accountable for the sins of yesterday. This is a, a, a cunning deception. I call this a cunning deception because God does hold us responsible for our unrepented sins and true guilt, which rightfully leads to discouragement. That's what happened to David. That's what he was feeling when he wrote, when I kept silent, when I kept silent about my sin, my, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Psalms 32, verse 3. But you know what? Satan attempts to use false guilt. Sins we've already confessed to throw our emotions into a tailspin. In the first instance, we should repent of our sins as David did in verse 5. In the second instance, we should remember that God has cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah chapter 7, verse 19. And refuse to allow Satan to go fishing for them. Another cause, unrelenting grief. Being separated from a loved one by death, defection, or distance is a prime source of discouragement. It's normal for us to feel uh, distraught when we're separated from those we love. When Jesus saw the tomb of his dead friend Lazarus, he wept, John eleven thirty five. But then he dried his eyes and he got up with life and by bringing Lazarus back to life. You know what? Activity is a great antidote for discouragement and depression. And so... And so is remembering this promise from Psalms 30, verse 5. Weeping may last for the, for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Amen? Another cause, unrectified imbalances. Unrectified imbalances. Doctors tell us that sometimes a chemical imbalance in the brain can be a source of of despondency. For example, an imbalance of sodium chloride in the brain cells hinders the transfer of messages from one cell to another. In the history of, the, of ancient Israel, two events more than any other shaped the people's character. Both had happy endings, but began in trauma. The first was the 400 years of Egyptian slavery followed by the exodus and the possessing of the promised land. The second was the 70 years in exile in Babylon, followed by the return to Jerusalem and rebuilding of the temple. When the Israelites returned to Jerusalem, they were surrounded by enemies who constantly nipped at their heels. No matter which direction they turned, the Israelites had to fend off attackers. Nehemiah says this, these people conspire together 
to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. Nehemiah 4.8. The, attack, the attacks were verbal, and they were meant to discourage the people from rebuilding the city walls. The attacks had their, had their intended effect. It's difficult not to become discouraged when you hear disheartening messages day in and day out. This is why if you're prone to discouragement, you should pick your friends very carefully. You want to have positive people in your life. Those, those who, who will encourage you with words of grace as though seasoned with salt. Colossians 4.6. On the other hand, negative people will discourage you with graceless. Words that leave, you, leave only bitterness. The Israelites didn't get to choose their neighbors. So they couldn't escape their heart, uh, hurtful words. Nehemiah told us what happened when the, these conspirators infiltrated the workers and spend, uh, spread the poison of discouragement. In the fourth chapter of his book of the Bible, we find the construction at the halfway point. And the reason the Israelites were discouraged are just as relevant for our own discouragement today. Because the people were drained. Green Bay Packers coach Vince Lombardi said this, Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Nehemiah observed the same thing. And when he wrote, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. Nehemiah 4.10. The Hebrew word for failing, kashel, means to stumble or, or to stagger. After 52 days of, of back-breaking labor, the, the wall was only halfway completed. As though they had, had a mind to work, these Israelites were physically and emotionally drained. Verse 6. The excitement of, of rebuilding Jerusalem was beginning to waver. If you are ever led a big project, you know something about this. After a while, enthusiasm gives ways to disillusionment. Cheers gives ways to complaints. And encouragements gives ways to discouragement. The midpoint, the midpoint of any major project is a dangerous place to be. The energy at the beginning lags in the middle. When what's before us, that which is yet to be accomplished, looks greater than what's behind us that which we've already accomplished. This is the moment when discouragement comes around and says, hey, hang it up, buddy. You'll never finish it. You just don't have what it takes. The people were disgruntled. They were disgruntled. When you live with teenagers, in the middle section of Nehemiah 4.10 can become your life verse. Yet there is much Rubbish. At least that's what I've been told. If you have teens, you may have not used this word in your home, but there are others who have. One such case from Pastor Joey's archives, case number Z2253782G, for my youth pastoring counseling chapter, parents describe their kids as Hansel and Gretel. You could follow the breadcrumbs to where they were uh, by tracking their clothes and backpacks from the front door to their bedrooms. Okay? 
These parents never use the words disgruntled when describing their reaction whenever they opened the door to their teen's bedroom and a mount came spilling out. But that's exactly what the Israelites felt as they looked around the city of Jerusalem. Sure, a good portion of the wall was finished, but there was a lot of rubble laying around. There were broken bricks. There was buckets of mortar. Also, the people were dejected. And we know from Nehemiah 4.10 that the people were, uh, were drained from their hard labor. The strength of the burden bearers is failing. And they were disgruntled, yet there's much rubbish. The final sentence in that verse tells us that they were also, what, dejected. And we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Being physically and emotionally drained, coupled with an attitude of being disgruntled, is a perfect recipe for dejection. Weary people are whiny people. Though the Israelites had a heart for the work, verse 6, they began to what? Complain. We were in over our heads. We just can't build this wall, verse 10. In other words, they were saying, it's too hard. The key... The key to keeping yourself from losing your grip on hope and sliding into discouragement is handling those difficulties with a positive attitude and a proper perspective. If you let negative thoughts dominate your thinking, then your perspective becomes, I would say, distorted. Look at all the rubble in my life. A distorted perspective, if not refocused leads to dejection, a dejected spirit that is. Life sucks, life stinks. And a dejected spirit leads to what? Discouragement. I just can't do this. The people were were distressed. If you add up the, the first three reasons for discouragement, you get a depressing outcome. You get distress. That's exactly where the Jews who were building the wall in Jerusalem, ended up. Nehemiah recorded in his journal what their detractors were saying and what the people believe. Our enemies said they will not know or see until we come along them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come against us, from every place where you may turn. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that nothing, nothing discourages us and derails our work for God more than negative comments, threats, warnings, gossip, and whisper campaigns are all spirit killers. Criticism. Criticism can contaminate the most courageous heart. Are you dealing with a critic in your life right now? Hmm? If, you, if so, you know what I'm talking about. Perhaps the, you know, the drip, drip of, of, of criticism is eroding your heart, and you feel yourself slipping uh, into distress. Unfairly uh, criticized, uh, you, you come... It can come from a coworker. It can come from a boss. But the most dangerous uh, criticism out there comes from 
our loved ones. Criticism is only one form of negative talk. Now, that being said, I want us to look at I want us to look at uh, <clears throat> Paul. Take off my glasses. You're sorry about that. From Paul's perspective, and how to change your thoughts so you're not discouraged as much. And of course, Paul had many reasons to be discouraged. Right? Paul had a very tough life. Time out. I got a uh, technical problem. My ear came off. That would be scary, huh? Visit amongst yourself. I think this will happen last time. My ear and this thing doesn't want to cooperate. Hey, what's happening here? My eyeball doesn't speak, so get down. Hey, I got it down. All right. Should we continue? Yes, Pastor Joey. Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 23, 28. I'm going to read it to you, okay? With much greater labors, with far, far more imprisonments, with more severe beatings, facing death many times, five times I received from Jews 40 lashes less one. Three, time I was, three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I received a stoning. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I spent adrift in the open sea. I have been on journeys many times in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, in dangers from Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in dangers in the wilderness, in dangers at sea, in dangers from false brothers, in hard work and toil. He says, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, many times without food and cold and without even clothing. Apart from that, from other things, there's this daily pressure, he says. There's this daily pressure on me of my anxiousness concern, um, anxious concern for all the churches on top of that. Now, that's a lot of things to be concerned about, right? Here, here's what Paul's going to do. Here are the essentials from Paul and how to conquer your discouragement in your life. Are you ready, church? Are you breathing, church? Amen. Okay. Paul says this. First, the first essential of defeating discouragement is this. Never forget how much God loves me. Never forget how much God loves me. Never forget that. You have to keep this constantly in focus if you're going to be immune to discouragement because everything in life flows out of the love of God, out of the mercy of God, out of the grace of God, out of the kindness of God. It all flows out of his love. Now, of course, you know God loves you, right? You've heard this probably all your life. But do you feel it? Do you truly believe it? When you stop feeling the love of God, you can't feel it in your heart. That's when you start to get discouraged. And you've got to know the mercy and the grace. You've got to feel God's mercy and grace. Here's the first verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. This is Paul's opening response. And this is what he says. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, 
We do not lose what? Heart. Say that, church. We do not lose heart. Therefore, the word therefore points to Paul's discussion of this new covenant in chapter 3, verse 6 through 18 of 2 Corinthians. Strength to endure trials comes from the unveiled look into the face of Christ, made possible under the new covenant. That look was also the source of, of, for strength for Paul's new covenant ministry. So you see, the apostle used the plural we as a humbler, a way of a referring to himself. By so doing, he softened the personal nature of his, of his defense of, of himself and his ministry. And the phrase, we have this ministry, emphasizes Paul's humble acknowledgement that God graciously granted him the privilege of being a new covenant minister. Acts 20, 24, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1 through 3. Paul called, Paul's call to the ministry was basically, based solely on God's mercy. God's mercy is this. God's mercy is withholding of the judgment of the sinners deserved. Temporarily, in the case of the unsaved, to give opportunity for repentance and faith, and permanently in the case of the redeemed. In this context, God's mercy means that instead of condemning Paul because he was a blasphemer and a prosecutor and a violent aggressor, 1 Timothy 1.3, God showed him what? Mercy by putting him into service, verse 12. As he kept his eyes on Jesus, Paul was strengthened, and he did not lose heart. The word, egeo, lose heart, means to, to give in to fear, to, to lose courage. It means, or behave like a coward. And despite his suffering and the, and the savage attacks on him by these false apostles, Paul had, had surrendered, has not surrendered whatsoever. His courage, guess where his courage came from? His courage came from confidence, a confidence knowledge of the God of glory whom he had perceived in whose face? In Jesus Christ. Paul was constantly conscious that he had this ministry by the mercy of God. His apostleship was solely due to God's mercy. So the combination of his mercy and the, and the surpassing glory of his, of his ministry encouraged him. It encouraged him and kept him from losing heart. Paul was, was in other words, he was energized. For ministry. And he said this, so we do not lose heart. Say that, church, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is what? Being renewed day by what? Day. 2 Corinthians 4.16. This is why we do not become discouraged, and we never give up. Now, in this whole chapter about uh, about three or four times in this chapter, chapter, he goes, this is why we don't get discouraged. This whole chapter is on discouragement. He starts by saying, I don't get discouraged because I remember how much God loves me. I remember the mercy of God, Paul says. I remember the grace of God, the kindness of God. When I'm focused on that, it drives discouragement away. He says, God in his mercy has given us everything you have in life. Everything. Is a gift of God's mercy. Amen? Here's the second verse. 
in addition to being energized by God's gift of ministry at his conversion, Paul naturally embraced forthrightness as his method of ministry. So this involved the rejection of all deceit. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, verse 2a. Literally, the hidden things of shame, the, the kinds of things people do but only undercover with shame if exposed. Specifically, Paul adds, we refuse to practice cunning, a cunning readiness to adopt any device or trickery for the achievement of, of ends which are anything but altruistic. Paul used the same word cunning again in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, where he describes Satan's work, saying, the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. This is the slyness and stealth of the dark side. Not Star Wars dark side, okay? This type of cunning uh, will stop at nothing. The cunning uh, ploys vary, okay? But the same self-interest pervades. But in contrast, Paul, what he does, he embraces openness and, and candor. On verse 2b, he says this, but, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves, that is, to everyone's conscience, conscience in the sight of God. Paul would advise Timothy, do your best. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. Rightly handling is based on the Greek word orthos, which means straight. So Paul was charging Timothy to impart the truth without what? Deviation, uh, straight, undiluted, you, to get it straight and give it straight. So by forthright openness of his ministry, Paul solicited the approval of all because he was convinced that when people were true to their conscience, they would be compelled to acknowledge that his ministry was one of integrity. And the fact that he conducted his straight-on ministry in the sight of God means that his ultimate concern, his ultimate concern in everything was to get God's approval. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 5.10. God was his primary audience. Paul preached the undiluted word of God with boldness and simplicity and clarity. The second key of defeating discouragement is never fake it, be yourself. Say that, church. Never fake it, be yourself. Okay. What I'm talking about here is being authentic, being genuine, being real. You've got to be who God made you to be. Nothing is more discouraging than trying to be something you're not. All right? Because when you wear this mask, when you act, uh, that gets tiring. And you're afraid that, uh, the other people might, might find out who you really are. And they're not going to like you. God might not even like you being that way, right? God does not bless fakes or phonies. Huh? God does not bless when you, you try to pretend to be what something you're not. Paul says, don't fake it. Don't fake it. 
Here's what he says in, in 2, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. We don't try to trick anybody. We don't try to trick anyone. In, in other words, we're not putting on this, this phony mask. We're not trying to pretend we're something we're not. And we don't twist the word of God. Instead, we teach the truth plainly, showing everyone who we really are. Now, what keeps us from being really real to, to other people and ourselves? One word, fear. That keeps us from being honest about our weaknesses in, our, in, our, in your own fear of rejection. What's the antidote to, to, to the fear of rejection? Point number one, focusing on God's unconditional love for me. That's what it is. Now, here's the third essential. Remember that it's not about me. It's not about me, church. The more self-focused I am in life, the more prone to discouragement I'm going to be. Every time you forget that, that life is bigger than you, that you're not the center of the universe, you're not God's gift to the world, you're not Charles Atlas holding the whole world or whatever. No. Here's the next verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. He says this, Our message is not about ourselves. It's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. Our message is not about us. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 5. The privilege of, of, of proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ might lead some to become proud okay, or, or boastful. In fact, one of the slanderous accusations the false apostle made against Paul was that he preached the self with selfish motives. He was in the ministry, they claim, for his own uh, uh, self-promotion, his own power, his own prestige. Nothing could be further from the truth, right? By declaring we do not preach ourselves, Paul distinguishes himself from the false apostles who did, in fact, preach themselves. And later in the epistle, he wrote, for we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. The false apostles who, who foolishly measured themselves by themselves and compared themselves with themselves demonstrated they were without understanding. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Far from being arrogant, proud, and, and self-assured, Paul ministered in Corinth in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. 1 Corinthians 2, 3. Instead of boasting of his own abilities and success, he wrote, On my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. I would rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of who? Christ may dwell in me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 5 and 9. You know, God has this unique message for you. He puts you on this earth, and he has a message he wants to say to the world through you. The message that God wants to say through you to the whole world is called your life message. Your life message is not about you. It's about him. It's about Jesus. God is always more interested. God is more, always more interested in why you do what you do than what you do. Let me say it again. God is always more interested in why you're doing what you're doing than he is 
what or even how because he cares about the motivation of your heart. Amen? Motivation. You can do the right thing, what, for the wrong reason, right? And so discouragement always happens when we forget the why. Number four, the fourth essential of defeating discouragement is the next verse. And it has to do with something like this. I need to relax in my limitations. Excuse me? I need to relax in my limitations? Yeah. Now, why is that an important antidote uh, uh, to discouragement? Let me tell you. Because you get discouraged when you try to be Superman or Superwoman. Okay? You get discouraged when you try to do more than humanly possible. You have to relax in your limitations. What we all need is a realistic view of you, okay? I need a realistic view of me. You need a realistic view of you. The facts are, I mean, let's just say them, okay? You can't fix everybody's problems, right? Do you agree with that? Okay. Anytime you don't live within the limitations of your life that are normal, then you're going to get discouraged. You cram too much in. Like a burrito, put all that stuff in there and it gets blown up. But I like burritos that way, don't you? Okay, here's the question. Is it easier to fill your schedule than it is to fulfill your schedule? Yes. Is it always easier to get in than to get out? Yes. Easier to make a promise than to keep a promise? Uh-huh. Easier to get into debt than to get out of debt? That's because we're not relaxing in our limitations, right? Now, Paul, Paul talks about literally physical limitations of your body in verse 7. He says, you need to know your limits. You need to know your warning signs, so to speak, when you're uh, overextended, in other words. And you need to realize that you're just the body. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we are like clay jars in which this treasure, the treasure of God, is stored. And the real power comes from who? Comes from God and not from us. We're like clay jars, right? Some of us are really big clay jars, right? Okay. Some of us jars in this room are very ornate, very beautiful. Others are mm, plain. Okay. You know what the one thing in common about all pottery, you drop it and it breaks easily. Exactly. God says our bodies like clay jars and we're all a little cracked, okay? Because we've all been what dropped. We've all been dropped here and there and everywhere. The treasure is the, is the illuminating power described in the preceding verse as the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. That God provides with a full creation power with which he spoke things into existence. This, this treasure I'm talking about, he's talking about, this creational, this transforming gospel power has been committed to insignificant, fragile followers of Christ. That's you and me. Like Paul, we're all clay pots. All clay pots. The reason for this is so there would be no mistake about where the power comes from. To show that the surpa surpassing power belongs to who? To God and not to us. This is 
Christian realism. Christians are never powerful in themselves, but are only vessels in which God's power is exhibited. So our frailty and weaknesses provides this, this ground for God's power. At the end of this letter, Paul rejoices that his, his weakness, weakness makes him a conduit for God's power. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my what? Power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And in chapter 4, the breaking up of our clay vessels through the crushing circumstances of life, allows the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To shine forth in full creation, gospel power. Now, we may imagine that we, as we embrace our weakness, uh, God will pour out his power right into us so that we become powerful. So the natural equation is this. My Weakness plus God's power equals my power. Huh? But that is not what it says. Paul's not saying that. He says, he teaches that as we embrace our weaknesses, God fills us with his power so that his power is manifested through us. We do not become powerful. We remain weak. We do not grow in power. We, we grow in weakness. We go from weakness to weakness, which is to remain vessels of his power, ever weak, ever strong. Humility is not denying your strength. It's being honest about your weaknesses. Humility is being honest about your weaknesses, and it's actually not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. We all have our weaknesses, right? We really come, I really come to the conclusion, actually, you can be spiritually godly and emotionally dysfunctional at the same time. People can be close to God and be this endless uh, storehouse of Bible knowledge and actually give God, uh, give good wisdom to people, but they're still messed up in their emotions or the personality. He says, just be real and be honest and accept your limitations. The fifth one. Fifth Use my pain to help others. Use my pain to help others. This is the fifth thing that Paul talks about in this chapter on discouragement. Paul says, I, I use my pain to help other, other people. 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9 says this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. In verses 8 and 9, the apostle gives these uh, parallel uh, illustrations uh, of Paul's experience of this, of this clay pot uh, axiom in his own life. The first one, he says, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Verse 8a. So the earthen uh, vessel of Paul's life was afflicted in the radical sense of pressure, which is best represented, and I looked this up, the word squeezed. You got some oranges, you squeeze them, Right? We are squeezed, but we're not squashed. We are squeezed, but not, not squashed. Perfect. Paul, he's a clay vessel that he was. He had this resiliency. He was never squashed. Second, 
Perplexed, but not driven to despair, 8b. At a loss, but not at loss. In despondency, yet not in despair. Fragile as Paul's humanity was when he confronted the difficulties and loss, he, 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 he was never in despairing. Was Paul perplexed at times? Yeah. But not driven to despair. Was he bewildered at times? Yes. Later, Paul would charge Timothy this, Timothy this, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardships, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry, 2 Timothy 4, 5. And this Paul himself did as God's strength was perfected in his weakness. The third one, persecuted but not forsaken, verse 9a. Paul knew what it was to be persecuted. Persecuted, hunted down, but he was never forsaken by God as the uh, Old Testament background of this word uh, indicates. God cannot forsake his own chosen vessels. When Jesus prophetically uh, cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Mark 15, 34, he knew that he would not be abandoned to the grave. And more, God will not forsake any of his people for they are redeemed by his son, Jesus. Paul was absolutely confident of God's abiding presence, regardless of how or where he was hounded. And the last one, the intensity uh, in the final expression here is struck down but not destroyed. 9b, struck down means struck down by a weapon. In other words, we call it, they're going to whack him, okay? But Paul was not destroyed. Rather, he was quickly back on his feet. He had an incredible strength in the midst of his total weakness. Question, why did he put up with all that? Why did he put up with the jailings, the beatings, going without food, being naked, shipwrecked three times in the night? His response, verse 15, all of, all of these sufferings of ours are for your benefit. He says, all the stuff, this is called redemptive suffering, church. All these sufferings of ours are for your benefit. The more of you who are one to Christ, then the more there are to thank him for his great mercy and the more God gets the glory. Saying, I keep on going, I don't get discouraged because I know it's helping others. When you have pain and you don't see any purpose, it becomes unbearable. When you, see, when you can see a purpose, a good purpose, when it comes, then it becomes bearable. It says here, what's the purpose? My purpose of my sufferings for other people's benefits. Sometimes you will suffer for the benefit of other people, and, and at that moment, you are more Christ-like than any other moment because that's what Jesus did. He suffered on the cross, not for his benefit. He hadn't done anything wrong. He suffered on the cross for our benefit. Amen? Amen. Let's give it up for Jesus.